Well, we're starting a brand new series this morning, uh, starting a summer series uh, just called Stories Jesus Told. Uh, We're going to be spending some time this summer looking at some of the stories that Jesus told. Uh, He, as he walked and as he talked with the disciples, oftentimes Jesus taught in the form of stories, uh, in the form of parables. You know, I think I think it's funny if someone today was to teach the way that Jesus taught, I don't think we would like it very much. Uh, I don't think we would like the, the story form teaching very much. We're much more of a, a culture that likes the answers. Tell me exactly what to do and do it now. Uh, you know, I, I want to, uh, I, I need, I need to fix my refrigerator. I'm going to go watch 15 YouTube videos that are three minutes long that all tell me how to do it. Right? This is uh, sprinklers. You probably do the same thing with some sprinklers. I want to fix this thing. You know, I'm going to go watch this. He's going to tell me step one, step two, step three. I'm going to be done. We don't really, when we ask a question, when we are wondering about something, oftentimes we don't appreciate a story in return. This is the way Jesus taught, though. Jesus taught a lot of the times in, in story form. Uh, you know, we, and this is the same in our spiritual lives, too. I mean, you, you think, all right, I want, to be able to, I want to be able to pray better. There are hundreds and thousands of books on prayer that we can go read that will tell you a, a formula of do this and do this and, and your prayer life will improve. Right? Or we want to understand the concept of holiness. There are detailed explanations and books and even YouTube videos that tell us exactly step one, step two, step three. But this is not the way that Jesus taught for the most part. Jesus taught in story form. form. Jesus painted a picture when he taught. And he wanted us to be able to, to think. Without exception, these stories had a purpose. They were always aimed at transformation in the lives of the hearer, and they were always designed to get the hearers to think. We're going to take a look at the first parable this morning. It's in Luke chapter 18. So if you want to turn there with me, Luke chapter 18. Uh, I think this is a good one to start with. It's not terribly long. It's not too short. Jesus kind of lays out the meaning as well. So we have all the different pieces of the story that we want here. Uh, And uh, we're going to take our time as we go through here. If you're looking for the page in our pew Bible, it's on page 901, if you want to join me there. Uh, But uh, Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 1, starting at verse 9, sorry, starting at verse 9. And like I said, we're just going to we're going to take our time. We're not actually going to read it all the way through right now. We're just going to take our time and just walk through this story. I love hearing Bible pages flipping. It's one of the greatest sounds in the world. Uh, so, first couple of verses. Let's, let's start off here. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. I'm going to stop right there because in these two verses, we have everything we need to know about the context. We have the who, we have the what, we have the why, or not the what, we have the who, the where, and the why. We actually have the who in a couple different contexts. We have the who in terms of who Jesus is speaking to here, right? Jesus is speaking, this passage says, Jesus is speaking to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Who he's talking to here is Pharisees. They're confident of their own salvation. They are confident of their own righteousness. The Pharisees were were a cocky group of people, as we'll see in just a second. But we see the who not only in terms of who he's talking to, but we see the who in the story. There are two men. One is a Pharisee. 
Pharisee literally means separated one. Pharisees believed that there were thousands of laws that people were supposed to fulfill in order to be right before God, in order to be righteous. And they believed that in order to do this, no ordinary person could do it. So what they did was they would cut themselves off from society and they would go elsewhere and they would try and live these laws. They were literally separated. They were the separated ones by choice. They separated themselves from society. But they, they, they were just a cocky group of people, like I was just saying. In fact, there was, a, there was an ancient writing, uh, an ancient uh, rabbi, Rabbi Shimon, in the earliest, the earliest second century, just, just to give you an idea of the thought of a Pharisee, here's what he said. If there are two righteous people, I and my son are these two. If there is only one, I am he. <laughs> That's what he says. Like, if there is only two righteous people, it's me and my son. If there's only one, he's out. I, just throwing him under the bus. Like, it's, it's me. I'm the righteous person. This is the, these dudes are a cocky bunch. Like, these Pharisees, they are, this is why I could say was pretty confident when, Jesus, when it says to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, He's talking about a Pharisee. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees, and now there's a Pharisee in the story. So that's person number one. We have the Pharisee. We also have the tax collector. The tax You can imagine Pharisees were not super liked, right? Cocky group of people. Tax collectors were also not super liked. Here's why. Tax collectors were responsible for taking a, a quote, fair tax from people. And they would just basically take whatever they want. And they were actually encouraged by the Roman government to take advantage of the people. Tax collectors were considered the scum of Rome. This is, just, this is who they were. So we'll, we'll catch a glimpse of the attitude that people had of tax collectors as we continue on in this parable. Let's just say these guys are not liked at all. So there are two men. Neither of them are very well liked. There is a Pharisee and there is a tax collector. So we have the who. The who is set in the story. What about the where? Where are they going? Two men. Go up to the temple. This is what this passage says in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple. Now, why? what's the temple? The temple is the house of God in Jerusalem. Now, God has not been confined to four walls. But from the time of King Solomon until Jesus' death, this was, the temple was seen as a place where God was represented on earth. And any person's interaction with God would most likely be happening at the temple. There's a great, a great chapter in 1 Kings, if you want to go there with me. I apologize, I don't have the, the page number for you in our pew Bibles. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, there is this, there's basically the whole chapter is King Solomon praying over the temple. He's praying about the temple. He's praying over the temple. He's praying that God would move in the temple. And here's just, just a little piece. Verse, verse 27 in chapter 8 in 1 Kings says this, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
He goes on in this chapter as he's praying to God about the temple to, to, to pray for different types of people that are going to pray there. He prays that when anyone wrongs their neighbor and prays that God would hear them. When, when God's people sin but turn their back to him, that he would hear them. When there's a famine or a plague, that they would pray towards this place or in this place and God would hear them. Then I, I love how he continues here because later on in this chapter he's making clear the temple is not just for the people in Israel. In fact, if you get to, to verse 40, 41 to 43, he begins this prayer. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear of your great name and mighty hand and outstretched arm. When they come and they pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. I want you to see just a couple things here. Solomon understands this temple is not the physical dwelling place of God. Every time he says, hear, hear from heaven your dwelling place, but he knows that this temple is a place where people can come and meet with God. But you'll notice a lot of the times, he's, he doesn't just say when come, people come into the temple, but he says when they pray towards the temple. This is going to be also important as we, as we keep going. But anyone in these days, anyone who is looking for answers, anyone who is looking for hope or searching for forgiveness or healing or, or restoration or even just a deeper relationship with God or with other people, the temple was the place that you would come. If you were in pursuit of God, you would come to the temple. And so we have these two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, Going to the temple. Why? That's our next question, right? Jesus doesn't leave us hanging here either. That, that, just that first verse, verse 10, makes it really clear why they were there. Two men went up to the temple to pray. They were going there to pray. And judging by the rest of the parable, it's these prayers that Jesus wants us to really focus on in this story. He spends basically one sentence setting the scene. And the rest of it is really about these prayers. I want to look at these prayers this morning because these prayers are drastically different. Right, they're drastically different just because of who the people are, where they're coming from. There's a lot of different reasons why these prayers are different. But I want to look at these because I think this is where Jesus wants us to, wants us hearers to be able to focus on and, and really, really think about. Remember, every parable is designed to make the hearers think. Think about these prayers. First, the prayer of the Pharisee. You get that and and verse 11 and 12 here in chapter 18. It says, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, <laughs> robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> if you were wondering what people thought about tax collectors. I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all I get. This is the tax collector's prayer here. Or the, sorry, the Pharisee's prayer. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like those people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. I want you to hear this. The Pharisee in this prayer, he's, he's praying 
to God. He goes to the temple to pray to God, but really what he's praying about is himself. He used the pronoun I four times in these two sentences that we have here. I thank you that I'm not like those people. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a tax collector. I love that tax collectors are just thrown into that group of people. You know, like, this is the, I'm not like those people. This is basically, if you think about it, the antithesis of how Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues. What do we see this Pharisee doing? He's standing in the synagogue, right? And on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus is obviously, not just in this passage, but in other passages, not pleased with how the Pharisees are praying. They're standing in the synagogue, praying about and really praising himself. I'm not like those other people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I'm not a tax collector. (laughs) It's about me. And you have to wonder at this point. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. Speaking to the Pharisees. You have to wonder at this point, right? The people who he's talking to are relating to this prayer. (laughs) These Pharisees who are probably like, that dude's really good. They're probably really proud of this guy. Yeah, thank God you're not like those people. Thank God you're not a tax collector or an evildoer or an adulterer. Thank God you're not like one of those. They're probably like, oh yeah, that's a great prayer. Just th- this, is, this is who Jesus is talking to. And I just, then George, Jesus decided, sort of flips the script a little bit and talks about the prayer of the tax collector. And I want to just talk about that. That's in the next verse, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Remember what I was saying earlier, Solomon knows that you can just pray towards the temple. Didn't even feel like he could get in there. The prayer of the tax collector as he approached, uh, sorry, verse 13, but the, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector is quite the contrast to the Pharisees' prayer. I mean, as he approached the temple, he was just so ashamed of, of who he was and all that he had done that he couldn't even look up to heaven. He couldn't even, he couldn't even look up. Have you been there? Have you been in a place where you're just so ashamed, so distraught, that you couldn't even bear to just look up? He just beats his chest and he says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. This is quite the contrast, right? The, the Pharisee is talking about himself. But he's doing so in really glowing terms. He's really praising himself. The tax collector also talks about himself. But he's talking about like, God, have mercy on me. I I am a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector, the only thing he talks about himself is that he is a sinner. So here they are. Jesus is speaking to this crowd of self-righteous people who are standing and they are waiting for this conclusion. And in typical Jesus fashion, the conclusion is not what they were expecting, most likely. And probably not what they would have appreciated the ending to be. Because here's, here's how he ends this in verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
I'm not really sure we can fully appreciate the social ramifications of what just happened in this story. Jesus, talking to a group of Pharisees, says, hey, two men went up to the, two men went up to the temple. It's like a start of a bad joke. Two men went up to the temple. A Pharisee and a tax collector. One of you went up to the temple with a tax collector. And the end of the story is the tax collector is the one who's justified. Just the, the social ramifications. These, these Pharisees, they trained. They studied every day. They set themselves apart so that they would be justified before God. They were their justification. Remember, just like there were those other people, the tax collectors, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, they weren't, they weren't like them. They were good people. <laughs> That's what they would say. I'm a good person. I do everything that I can in order to be justified. I, I, even in this passage, it says, I, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. I'm doing all the things you're asking me to do. And yet Jesus says, it's this other guy, the tax collector. He's the one that walks away justified from this situation. He is the one who is exalted. It's the tax collector, the scum, the cheater. He was the one who was justified. There we go. All right. I'm going to go back a few minutes, if that's all right. <laughs> just, to get, just to make sure I know what I'm doing here. All right. So, like I was saying, I'm not sure we can fully understand the whole social ramifications of this. All right. Jesus says, you're a Pharisee. He's talking to Pharisees. Talking about, hey, one of you was up at the temple with a tax collector. And it's the tax collector who came back justified. This is pretty amazing because these Pharisees, they've spent their entire lives trying to, to earn their way in, right? They, they separate themselves from everybody else. They do all these things. Even in this passage, he says, I'm fasting twice a week. I'm giving a tenth of all I'm getting. I'm doing exactly what you're telling me to do. And yet I'm not the one who's justified in this situation. Right? There's this, this the sense of the tax collector. It's the, the scum, the cheater. He was the one who was justified. All of these outward things that I'm doing, they don't mean anything. This is what Jesus is saying. They don't mean anything unless, unless they are accompanied by a healthy heart and a humble heart. This is actually a really consistent teaching from Jesus and one that is backed up over and over and over again in Scripture. And if I'm honest, I think that's where we need to just kind of look for ourselves in the story because I think the greatest lesson of this parable as we look at these two prayers and we look at the outcome of this is I think the greatest lesson is also I think the key to our pursuit of God and this is this we need to have a humble heart we need to have a humble heart whether you've been a follower of Jesus for for years and years or you're not haven't been a follower of Jesus for very long a humble heart is the right approach I wonder if we believed that and if we lived out this, this sense that we need a humble heart, how would it change our lives as we seek to live out the will of God? How would it empower our evangelism as we reach out to others? How would God work in us and through us if he always found us with a humble heart? Right, scripture says a ton about humility. Isaiah 66.2 says, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Ephesians 4.2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. James 4, verse 6, says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He's actually quoting Proverbs 3.34 there. He says just a few verses later, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, chapter 6 is also quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humility is essential in our pursuit of God. This is what Jesus is saying and through, these, through these prayers here. Who is the one that was justified? It was the humble one. Right? He even says this, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We need to have a humble heart. What does this look like? I think Jesus would have us look at the tax collector in this story. And I think really if we look at the, the tax collector, what we find is actually really profound. I think just like the tax collector, I think we need to have a sense of our own inadequacy. The tax collector absolutely had a sense of his own inadequacy. This, I can't do this on my own. I need your mercy. I'm in need of mercy, God. There's a famous quote by Abraham Lincoln. He said, I would be the greatest fool on earth if I thought I could carry the burdens placed on me for one day without the help of one who is greater than I. We need to have this, this same sense that, yeah, I said, I said yes to God, and that means my life needs to change, but I can't do this on my own. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about sanctification. The sense that I'm saved, I've said yes to God. But there comes a point in my life where I need to understand I cannot do this without the work of the Holy Spirit within me. I just can't. This is the work of sanctification in us and, and realizing that I, this life I'm called to live is impossible outside of the work of the Spirit within me. Outside of allowing the Spirit to live and move within me. And I think like the tax collector, we need that same sense of our own inadequacy. I can't do this on my own. But we also need a sense of our own sin. Remember what this tax collector said when he came up to the temple. He couldn't even look up to heaven. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He couldn't even look up. He has a, a sense of his own sin. But as Jesus said, that is what counts. Romans 12 tells us to essentially have uh, kind of a sober self-assessment. <laughs> look at yourselves. Don't look at yourselves more highly than you ought to. Have, ha, understand that there is a sense of your own sin. That We need to be honest about the ways in which we struggle. We need to be honest about the, the footholds that Satan might even have just the, the slightest edge on. We need to be very honest with ourselves about this. And we need to be humble and honest about those things. I had a friend this week call me and say, hey, I need your help. It's kind of personal. It's kind of important to me, but... My wife's going to be gone for the weekend, and then she's going to be gone for a couple weeks. And I know in my heart that I struggle with porn sometimes. And I just need you to help keep me accountable. I was like, absolutely. And we talked for a little bit, all right? What, what time do you want me to call? What time do you want me to text you? What time? You know, and it was like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Just this sense of our own sin, the sense of our own inadequacy. This is what it's all about. I don't want to struggle with this. I need your help. I need the help of God in my life to not be able to do this. So how do I pursue God 
with a humble heart. We take the attitude of the tax collector, having an attitude of our own inadequacy, a sense of our own inadequacy, a sense of inadequacy, or a sense of our own sin, but then I think there's just, just a few things that I want to just talk about. How do I pursue God with a humble heart? The first one is we need to just be still. Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. Sometimes to hear God's voice in our lives, we need to kind of just chill. Bring the noise level down a little bit. Just be still. I go back to Matthew chapter 6, the same passage where Jesus is saying, hey, don't pray like these Pharisees. You know how it tells us to pray? When you pray, go to your closet. Go to a quiet spot. Just you and God. Just be. Be still. And when we're still, we're able to, to pull away from the distractions. God will speak. He'll speak through his word. He'll speak through our circumstances. He'll speak through his spirit. But we need to be still enough and humble enough in our own attitudes to be able to hear what God has to say to us. So we need to be still. We need to be willing. I go back to a verse in Proverbs. No doubt some of you have this memorized. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and not in your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The New Living Translation, I like it, says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. And it says, seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. But the thing is, once you're shown the path to take, you have to be willing to go. You have to be willing to do it. So be still, be willing, be ready. God might lead you to do something that you never expected him to lead you to do. God might lead you to go to a new place. He might lead you to do something new. He might need you to do something old. He might need to go talk to someone or do this or do that or go there. And you honestly might not want to hear what he has to say. You ever heard that? You ever felt a direction from God and been like, I don't want to do that. I know I have, but maybe I'm just alone. I heard one laugh, so maybe two people in here. I don't know, but maybe you feel unprepared, unequipped, unqualified. But if you enter the situation with a humble heart, then you really do understand that God will move in and through you, and you will succeed in what he's calling you to do because he's going to do it. So we need to have the attitude of the tax collector. We need to have a sense of our own inadequacy. Have a sense of, of our own sin. And then as we follow him, we need to just take some time to be still. Be willing. And be ready. I think my, my prayer for you this week is that as we, as we renew our pursuit of Jesus with a humble heart, that God would just Move and speak to you as you just quiet your own self. Quiet the distractions. Be still, be willing, be ready. Let's pray.